Thank you for listening to audio from Gospel Community Church in Eugene, Oregon. For more information about our church or our Sunday services, please visit gccugene.org. Culture, the inescapable facet of humanity that saturates, shapes, and sways. What does culture tell us is important? What does it tell us to value? Do the themes of today align with what the gospel says is enduring and meaningful? The messages of culture can be so loud, so pervasive, and so crushing, yet so quietly stealthy at getting into our souls. Just do it. Have it your way. Obey your thirst. The cries of culture put us at the center of our world. Just go after it. But instead of chasing after the counterfeits that will slowly crush us, we are asked to come. Come to Him who can satisfy our deepest longings. Come to Him who will give us rest for our weary souls. Come to Him who is crushed for us. Instead of taking what culture says is true, we need to become students of truth by reading what the world says and comparing it to what the Word says by hearing the world's news and recognizing it doesn't compare to the good news, by seeing that the world offers empty promises that lead to despair and looking to the King who makes us His heirs. Father, thank you um, that you are not a, a distant God. Uh, Father, thank you that you uh, did not create the world and then step back to let it do its thing apart from you, but God, you are intimately involved in our everyday lives. You're a God who desires relationship with us, who desires to be with us, near to us, close to us. God, we've done everything um, that we can possibly do to mess that up uh, and to run from you and to separate ourselves from you, but God, you have pursued us. And you've pursued us in Christ Jesus, who has come to live for us and die for us and rise from the dead for us. So God, I pray that that, that truth, the, the fact that you have entered into history to rescue us and save us from our sin, from our imperfection, to give us perfection, uh, would be uh, on the forefront of our minds and hearts this morning as we hear from your word. God, I pray that as we sit under the preaching of your word, you would be opening our eyes, our hearts, our minds to, to see you more clearly, to know you more fully, to, to love you more deeply. Um, God, shape us by your word. Uh, help us to, to be transformed from one degree of glory to the next as we behold uh, your glory in Jesus in the gospel. God, I pray for uh, just our church family. Uh, Father, for those who are sick and hurting, God, I pray that you'd bring healing. Uh, for those who uh, are, are distressed and, and restless, God, bring, bring rest. Uh, I think specifically of the Carters who are, are across the country now awaiting a surgery for their little girl. Father, I pray that you would just be with them and comforting them. For others, God, who um, have gotten uh, unfortunate news in regards to health or family or whatever it may be, Father, just pray that your peace uh, would be with us as a church family uh, this morning and this week. God, we love you. Help us to do all things we do as a church and as individuals uh, for your glory. Pray that you'd be glorified even now as we open your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning, church. It's good to see you guys. It's good to see Rebecca. She's back with us this morning visiting for a couple weeks, so welcome back. 
it's also awesome to hear all the new babies. So congrats to all of you guys. So this morning, we're continuing our series, as you just saw, Catchphrases That Crush. And so uh, some have even asked, uh, why are we, uh, um, in a sense, not just preaching through a book of the Bible like we normally do? That's, that's typically how you're going to get fed here on a Sunday morning is we preach through books of the Bible. When we do something like this, we are still going to turn to Scripture and, and, and preach through Scripture as a whole and see how Scripture speaks of these things and shapes these things. And so we are a church that is submitted to the Word of God, showing that the Word as a whole is pointing to the Gospel. And so part of this is that uh, the voice of culture and society is so loud that we want to constantly train and teach our people what society is saying, and then ultimately see what the word is saying and, and how the gospel's better. And so a disciple, as we talked about last week, means student and learner. And so we want to train and teach as students and learners that this is the prevailing message that society has given, sometimes explicitly, sometimes implicitly, but this is what the word says. And so that's why we're doing this. This is going to be a short series before we roll into the Christmas Advent, Christmas Advent season. And so as Brad said, today we are looking at this Lexus theme slogan, the relentless pursuit of perfection. So <clears throat> our main point this morning that I want you guys to walk away with, and I, I'm, going to, I'm going to just drill it down over and over and over again to where you guys are sick of hearing it is once and for all time perfection. That's the main point, once and for all time perfection. So uh, for the most part, people hear the relentless pursuit of perfection and no one goes, that sounds nice, or I like that. Uh, for the most part, no one thinks they're perfect. And so like if you ask people for the most part, most people are gonna say they understand they're not perfect. If someone does say that, they're probably just not an enjoyable person to be around. Uh, but for the most part, people will say that. So. We, we recognize this doesn't sound, relentless pursuit of perfection doesn't sound nice. This is just an explicit, direct way of saying what a lot of culture's message is to people, though. Cultures constantly tell us this is what perfection looks like. This is how you need to be perfect. This is the perfect lifestyle and all these things. So, so Lexus, very direct, very explicit, but the rest of culture does this in subliminal, just kind of like secretive ways. It's constantly pumping that information into us. And so we're going to look at that this morning. We're even going to look at that right now. The 20th century really shaped our views of love. How? Hollywood, Hollywood movies, romantic comedies, songs really shape the way that we view and understand love. And, and before we know it, we have adopted a cultural view and perspective of love that's not biblical at all. And how did that happen? It just happens over time because you watch enough movies, you, you listen to enough songs, love country music, all right? As I said, scientifically proven, it's the best. So, but... Country music causes a lot of messes for pastors because it, it, it portrays this view of love just in the same way that rap music causes a lot of problems for pastors as it shapes view of, of, of sex. And so we, we, we hear these things coming at us. And then before you know it, we believe that. We're like, man, I want a love story that looks like that. Let me read you guys this. These are the lyrics from a very popular song. I'm just going to read them. Yeah. <laughs> All right. I need a, little, <laughs> need a little beat. There's no chance. <clears throat> yeah, literally, unless Jesus stood right here and told me to sing it, that's never happening. So, uh, <clears throat> so here you go. All for one. You guys remember this boy band? Oh, yeah. Just listen, listen to the words. They read you Cinderella. You hoped it would come true, that one day your Prince Charming would come rescue you. You like romantic movies. You never will forget the way you felt when Romeo kissed Juliet. All this time, you've been waiting. You don't have to wait no more. I can love you like that. L listen, I will make you my world. 
Move heaven and earth if you are my girl. I will give you my heart. Be all that you need. Oh, that sounds like an idolatrous relationship. Uh, show you your everything that's precious to me. If you give me a chance, I can love you like that. I will never make a promise I don't in can, uh, intend to keep. When I say forever, it's what I mean. I'm no Casanova, but I swear this much is true. I'm going to hold nothing back when it comes to you. Goes on to say, open up your eyes. I can love you like that. This is the part I, I really enjoy. He says, you want tenderness? I got tenderness. And I see through to the heart of you. If you want a man who understands, you don't have to look very far. Any woman who's been married for more than a month or a year could honestly tell you they have a man that does not understand them. Okay? In, in fact, boys don't understand girls and girls don't understand boys. Like I walk, to the, I walk to the mall with my little girls and what do they do when a baby walks by? They look and they awe. Boys don't even know that baby exists, right? It, boys and girls are just really different. So you have these promises that are coming. Then, hey, we can, we can laugh and it's a joke, but the reality is, is Hollywood is pushing an agenda and so are, is, so are a lot of songs. If this is what the love, the perfect love story should look like, this is what you need. Love gets turned into primarily an emotion that's felt, not a devotion that's lived out. And then in reality, we want a perfect love story. And we start adopting these things and thinking through these things. And so it's what we're going to look at today. Again, the once and for all time perfection that ultimately Christ brings is what we need. We're going to be in the book of Hebrews today, okay? So turn with me to Hebrews. It's toward the back of your Bible. Hebrews is a robust theological letter. It is, in a lot of ways, a commentary of the Old Testament. I mean, it is rich and it is deep. I mean, it's constantly pointing to who Christ is and what Christ has done. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 10 this morning. Hebrews chapter 10. Where we're going to be camping out in is 11 through 18. But I'm going to read from the beginning of the chapter just to give you guys a framework of what's happening there. Hopefully it'll help us understand what's going on as we jump in in verse 10. This is the word of God. This is, this is a letter in our Bible who we're not sure still who the author is. And so there's speculations, but we do know this, that it's divine, it's authoritative, and it's God's word. So let's read it. Chapter 10, verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Verse 8. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings, in burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are the offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. That's what we're going to pick up today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Saturate us in your word. Your word is truth. Your word is the very essence of how we're sanctified. God, as your word says that, speak to us, give us clarity. Correct us where we're wrong. 
Father, where we've adopted a, a, a view and a perspective that the world has given to us, recorrect us now through the goodness of your word and, and let us behold with even new eyes this morning, the believers in the room, let them behold the gospel afresh and, and be in awe. Those who haven't accepted the gospel yet, those who haven't trusted in you, reveal to them the beauty and the glory of the perfection that we do need that you've accomplished for us, Jesus. We pray in your name, amen. So let me unpack what's going on there in, in verses one through nine. This is what we called the, the old sacrificial system, okay? And this, the old sacrificial system, it, it, was, it was good, but it was imperfect. As the text says, it was not able to do what needed to be done to cleanse us. So that means we have to go back even further than that to understand what it's talking about. In Genesis 3, we see this. We see the fall of mankind. We call the fall the fall because what has happened is man fell away from a good God and man fell away from a good nature. And so from that moment on, our good nature was no longer good at the core. It was corrupt and we fell away from God. That's what Christians refer to as the fall, okay? What happens is this is God would be perfectly just in his goodness and his holiness to fix the problem right then and end it with Genesis 3. But he doesn't. Because by doing so, what God would need to do is get rid of humans because humans are the problem. We like to think of sin floating around out there. The problem is that we are the sinners and God would need to eradicate the problem, which is us. And so God chooses not to do that. Instead, what he does is he develops a system called the sacrificial system. What do we see in this? God has a massive desire because he is relational to be with his creation. And so he develops a system to where sacrifices can be made, animal sacrifices, so that people can be forgiven, they can be cleansed, and so justice can be paid. Meanwhile, God upholds his justice and holiness. You want a just God. You want a holy God. The reason why you watch vigilante movies and stuff like that, and, and you see justice rolled out, you're like, yeah, get him. The reason that's in you is because you understand justice. God would not be a just God if he turned a blind eye to evil. And so he has to do something. The reason why there's this relentless pursuit in us to be good or to be perfect or to pursue that is because God actually showed, listen, Christian or non in the room, the reason that you pursue goodness, the reason why you try to do things, the reason why there's things in you you don't like is because it's our attempt to try to get back to the good nature that God created us in. It's our best attempt to try to get back there. We're just trying to do it through our efforts. So God provides a system. The system is this, to, uh, to be made simple, is you offer a sacrifice and through the blood and through the death of the animal, the penalty is paid to this animal for us to be able to be forgiven and be cleansed, okay? Anyone in the room who loves animals goes, that's not fair. And we should say, exactly, it's not fair that an innocent animal should take the punishment and the wrath and shed the blood. Instead, we should, right? And so that's the old covenant. But what the what the text is saying is that doesn't have the power to perfect anyone. It doesn't have the power to cleanse us on the inside. It's something that has to be repeated year after year after year. What we need is something better, which is when we get to the new covenant, we get to the new Testament, we see what is better. It's Christ himself. Look with me, verse 10. Just so you know, if you have any questions on that, I tried to unpack the Levitical sacrificial system in about five minutes, and there's a lot there. So if you have questions, come up and talk to me afterwards. So verse 10 says this, look here. And by that, by what? And by that will, he's looking back to verse nine. So go back with me. Then he added, behold, I have come. This is Jesus. I have come to do your will, to do the will of the father. 
He does away with the first, the sacrificial, imperfect system in order to establish the second, the new covenant, okay? Look here, verse 10. And by that will, the will of God, we have been sanctified. Look at this beautiful preposition, through. It doesn't say through your devotional life. It doesn't say through your good deeds. It doesn't say through your best efforts. It doesn't say through your good parenting. It doesn't say any of that. It says through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all, okay? So listen, we have been sanctified. That word, we're gonna cover a Greek word. We don't need to overdo Greek, but this is important for right now. Say hagiazo. There was not confidence, which I don't blame you on that. So it was good, hagiazo, okay? This word hagiazo means holy, set apart. And so this word here is that we have been holy, made holy and set apart. How? Through the offering. You see, when Christ came, he wasn't like the priest of the Old Testament. The Old Testament priest would take an animal and they would lay that animal down on the altar. When Christ came, he came as the ultimate high priest who said, I'm not here to lay an animal down on the altar. I'm laying myself down on the altar, the altar being the, cro uh, the cross to be sacrificed because he's eternal and we need an eternal sacrifice to be laid down. He is the once and for all time perfection. He is the once and for all time perfect offering. This is what this is saying. This is through the offering, his offering, his life, his sacrifice once and for all. Where else do we see this word hagiazo, sanctified? Because oftentimes when we think about sanctification, we think about what Christians would call progressive sanctification, this ongoing work of us being made in the likeness of Christ. Oftentimes when the Bible uses the word sanctification, it's talking about a past event, like here, sanctified. It's looking to a moment that once and for all, you were set apart and made holy. You know where else we see this? We see this in Matthew 6 when Jesus teaches how to pray. Here's what Jesus says there. He says, pray then like this, okay? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Let me read it again with the Greek word that's, that's used. Our Father in heaven, Hagiazo, be your name. Hallowed, holy, be your name. Then we see this same word if we fast forward to the letter to the, uh, uh, to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 6.11. Paul unpacks, this is who you once were. You were sexually immoral. You were all these things. That's not who you are anymore. This is who you were. You have a new nature, a new identity. This is who you are. Here's what he says. And such were some of you, old nature, but you were washed you were sanctified. What's that word? Hagiazo. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus. Just so you don't miss this, when Jesus teaches someone to pray, he says, pray like this. Father, Hagiazo, hallowed, holy is your name. When Paul comes in and says, this is who you are, he uses the same word applied to God to describe what's happened to you and who you are now. You are, which it sounds almost heretical to say, you, when you've placed your trust and, trust and faith in Jesus, are as holy as the holy God of the universe because you cannot dwell in the holy presence of a holy God without being made into his holiness. It almost sounds crazy for us to get our minds wrapped around this, that God makes us holy. How does he do it? It's not through us. It's as the text says here in Hebrews, verse 10. He does this through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. This is the once and for all time perfection that Christ brings, that we are set apart once and for all, made completely holy once and for all. This changes the way you live. 
This changes the way you live. If you go around understanding that Christ has made you just as holy in God's eyes as God is, that changes the way that we live, the way that we interact with people. If you understand that you got this through something you did, it would make you arrogant. If you understand you got this through another means besides God's grace, it humbles you that we have the once and for all time perfection of the perfect offering that Christ made. Verse 11, and every priest stands, drawing attention here, every priest stands daily at a service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. This is meant to sound exhausting. He's going back and saying, look, this is what the priest did. Every day he stands. He, do, he does it day after day. He, he has to do it year after year. He has to do this, and it's exhausting. This is what the priest had to do. You know what this is? This is what religion is at the core, thinking that there's something that you can do in your own efforts to make yourself right with God. I know this personally. Because I thought early on that, 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 that the very thing that I needed to do was, was live a perfect life in order God, for God to be pleased with me. And you know what? I was a miserable person and no one really wanted to be around me. You know who else tried this? The German monk, Martin Luther. He got to the point where he said that he was angry with God and even hated God because he could not live up to God's standard. Then he read the letter of Romans in Galatians and it changed him. He was trying so hard to be perfect, and it was crushing him. And I think that's the thing. Our, our culture's constantly given us ideologies of like, if we all do this or we all do this, this will be a perfect life. This will be a perfect culture. These things will start to crush us. Because oftentimes these things are thrown out there, and they're Christless. In fact, there's a guy who wrote a book called Crisis Christianity. His name is Michael Horton. Big fan. He has this quote. He's actually quoting a Presbyterian minister named Donald Barnhouse. This is Michael Horton saying this, but he says, Barnhouse speculated that if Satan took over Philadelphia, all the bars would be closed, pornography banished, and pristine streets would be filled with tidy pedestrians who smiled at each other. There would be no swearing. The children would say, yes, sir, and no, ma'am, and the churches would be filled every Sunday where Christ is never preached. In other words... Our culture is trying at all costs to, uh, to obtain a level of perfection that is not possible, so much so that it's exhausting people, and it's at, the, at trying to do something without Christ. It's impossible. It's daunting. And I think it's why, even as Brad said earlier, it's why there's so many people in our culture burn out, tired, exhausted, because we are trying to relentlessly pursue some form of perfection that the world tells us that we need. Verse 12, look here. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, we, we often think about what we need to sacrifice. We sacrifice time, we sacrifice money, we sacrifice these things. But look what the text says. When Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, what did he do? He sat down at the right hand of God. What does this show? Finality, completeness, doneness. This is the once and for all time perfection of Christ's work completed and done, finished. Like when he said it is finished, he meant it. When he sat down at the right hand of God, he meant it, that his work is sufficient, it's perfect, it's once and for all time done. And this is what he's saying. He's also saying this, if you look at 13, it says, waiting from that time until his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet. What does he mean here? is that Christ isn't sweating his enemies. Also, Christ isn't uh, sweating the sufficiency of his work for those that trust in him. 
He's like, this is going to carry them through for all eternity. It says in Philippians, what, what, what God has brought or what God has started in us, he will bring it through to completion. So Christ isn't sweating. He's sitting down. He knows how, how finished his work is. He knows the finality of it. He knows that it's a once and for all time, perfect sacrifice. So he sits down, sitting down shows rest. It shows trust, which is why it's hard for us to do. You know what I love? Ephesians 2, 4 through 7 says this, but God being rich in mercy, look at this, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together in Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him, look here, right here, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness to us. Paul wrote a letter to alive people. The Ephesians were not dead people. And he's saying that you are so secure in the once and for all time perfection of Christ's work that you're, that you're seated with him right now in the heavenly places. He's talking to alive people and saying, this is how secure you are. This is how secure your standing is. This is how much you can rest in the once and for all time perfection of Christ. That right now, it's as if you're seated with him at the right hand of God. What about us being sanctified? Verse 14. Four. By a single offering, he has perfected for all time. Because right now you might be like, well, this is talking about Christ. His perfect offering is perfect sacrifice. What about us? What does the text say that he's made us perfect? For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time. Those who are being sanctified. Again, his perfect offering, his perfect sacrifice, he has perfected. This, this is a one and done thing. This is a once and for all time. When Christ makes you perfect, there's no addition to that. There's nothing that needs to be added. There's nothing more that can be done to make you more perfect. When Christ makes you perfect, that's a one and done thing. Once and for all time, you're made perfect. He gives that. It's a free gift. And, and, and you might say, well, back in verse 10, you said this word hagiazo and that we've been set apart. It says here that we're being sanctified. Yes, we have been made perfect once and for all when you trust in Jesus. But what he's doing is he's helping us to grow and live into our new nature. There's a big difference of working for something and working from something. There's a massive difference in working for to obtain something or working from something that's given to you. If we look at our grading system uh, in the U.S., uh, a lot of that came from Yale uh, uh, University, from a guy named Ezra Stiles back in 1785, who was trying to uh, basically bring a systematic way of doing grading. So in our culture, we do grades, right? Here's, here's the thing. We know and understand from, from kids from a young age that, that our work contributes to a good grade. Our bad work contributes to a bad grade. Then we get done with that. Or toward the end of school, you got to take your SATs. In order to get in grad school, you might have to take a GRD. So all these scores and all this stuff matters. What will actually help you and what will produce a ton of freedom in your life is when you know and understand you've been made perfect already. There's nothing you can do, and you get to work out of that. And from that, you're not trying to obtain it. You're working from it. And, and this is what he's saying. And in fact, Paul says this too in Philippians 2. Paul says... Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Know this, it is God who works in you. And so what are we doing? We're, 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 we're striving to live just consistently with who God has already made us. That's really different than, uh, I'll use this analogy, and I think I've used this one before. Imagine this. Imagine as a struggling student, struggling. You're, you're, you're giving it your all, and, and it seems like it's, it's, it's not enough. Principal calls you into his office. 
And he says, so-and-so, from now on, every paper you turn in, every assignment, everything you do, I'm going to write 100% on it. What would you do and how would that impact the way you live as a student? Some of you are like, I'm go, like I would go hog wild. I would never do anything. I would never work again. But, but if you understand the grace that the principal is giving you, it changes things. What the principal is saying, it's ultimately not your work that is going to change your grade. It's me saying what your grade is, and that's final. In the same way, Christ comes along, gives us 100%, an A+, and there's nothing we can do to change our grade. But what we don't do when someone gives such a glorious, gracious gift to broken people is say, how can I now spin on that by living inconsistently to what you've made me? Instead, we go, my goodness, and, and here's the reality. A lot of times, there's joylessness in our life. Just, there's no joy. There's, we're at war. And because we're living inconsistent with who Christ has made us. We are choosing to live imperfect lives. We are choosing to adopt sin. We are choosing to live in a state of unholiness, though we've been made holy, we've been made perfect. That's why we're in relationships we shouldn't be in. That's why we're doing things we shouldn't do. That's why there's turmoil in our lives because we're doing things and living in a way that goes inconsistent with the perfection once and for all time that Christ has given us. But again, this is not something that we are obtaining. This is something that's been obtained for us, that's been made ours by the grace of God. Sanctification is a good thing. It is an ongoing work, a process of the Spirit. But just know this, this is free. It's very slow, okay? But God will bring it to completion. That's what his word says. Look at verse 14. For by single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. If you ask now, how do we become sanctified? How do we grow into this? How, how are we made into the likeness of Christ? I love when scripture answers a question for us. John 17, 17 answers that question for us. And it says this, sanctify them. This is Jesus praying to God on behalf of believers. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. The way that we grow in sanctification is through the word of God. This is how we grow into the likeness of Christ. As we study the word that is all pointing to the once and for all time perfection, God grows us into who we are and we need to be saturated people inside of the word. We need to be people that live and abide and dwell inside of the word. In fact, this is what verse 16 and 17 is getting at. This is a covenant. He's talking about all this that I will make with them. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and I will write them on their minds. The way that God transforms our hearts and our minds is through the word of God. Why is this relative? Why is this important? Do you know the average person hears 20 to 30,000 words a day? The average person spends about five to six hours on their phones a day and roughly two and a half hours of that is social media. Do you know that is constantly the world telling you what you need to have a perfect life? This is, where, this is where eating disorders come from. This is where bitterness comes from. This is where burnout comes from. This is where just this perfect life, perfect yard, um, perfect family, just perfect everything is constantly with images coming our way, telling women, this is the body you need, telling men, this is the life you need. It's exhausting. It's exhausting. How do we counter that? The truth. The very means that God has given us to remind us of what is true and what is good, and the way that he grows us is in this. I'm going to paraphrase Charles Spurgeon, my favorite pastor and theologian. 
is he says something along the lines of this. Show me the person whose Bible is a wreck, and I'll show you the person's life who isn't. Show me the person's life whose, uh, whose Bible is intact, and I'll show you the person whose very life probably isn't. This is not just some cool manual. This is the word of God that sanctifies us and grows us because it reminds us of the once and for all time perfection. When you open your Bible, you open your Bible as a perfect child of God who he looks upon with his own holiness seeing you, and you read from that. This is also, I think, social media and all this stuff is where a, a lot of studies are being done with NSSIs, non-suicidal self-injuries, and perfectionism, showing that there's non-suicidal self-injuries are burning, picking, cutting, and stuff like that. It's, it, it's, it's, it's really um, prevalent in women. And it only makes sense because if things in your life can't be perfect and you're trying at all costs to make things perfect, then one of the things you can do is abuse yourself. It would crush me as a father to think that my kids need to be perfect or obtain some level of perfection in and of themselves. My wife does a great job with this, of washing our kids in the word. Every day they drive to school, she like raps and sings Bible verses with them. And I am not good at it, but she does this. And what she's doing is washing our kids in the word. She's saturating their minds. Will they understand it? Maybe not all now, but what she's doing is giving them what the word says instead of just what the world says. It's a beautiful thing. Again, he says, I'm going to put this on your minds. I'm going to write it on your hearts and minds. I wish I could read all of Psalm 119 to unpack for you guys the importance of living in the word of God, but it's too long. Make it your homework to read it. But just let me read part of Psalm 119, okay? Love this. How can a young man keep his way pure? Don't raise your hand, but how many of you struggle with purity in, in the room? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart, I seek you. Let, not me, or, or, let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips, I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the ways of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. So many times people are like, I, I just don't have time to get in the word. You, you don't have time to not get in the word. We need to live in the word, not pursuing it. Because someone could come back right now and say this, Rick, Jesus says this, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. I would say yes. And as Martin Luther said, the reason why Jesus said that is because that is a crushing blow to anyone's self-righteousness. That is a crushing, devastating blow because you would know if you're honest, you're like, I can't be perfect in and of myself, by myself, I can't obtain this, which is why Christ obtained it for us, which is why he did it for us. And it's, it, it's why he gives it to us. That verse should crush us so much to make us go, I can't. And he goes, I did. That's the gospel. I do think the reason why we are exhausted, we are burnout, we are tired, we are bitter, we are angry, we are short-fused, all of those things is because there's this relentless pursuit of perfection instead of understanding the once and for all time perfection that Christ has given us. You can know that, but to actually rest in that is a different thing. I need my community. This is where the word comes into play. This is where community comes into play. I need my community. I need my brothers and sisters. I need them to look me in the eye and say, Rick, I know you know that you're made perfect in Christ, but how are you doing actually resting in that? Are you actually believing that beyond, beyond just a thought? And, and, and is your soul finding rest in the, the once and for all time perfection Christ has given you? I need that. We need that. Look here, verse 17. 
Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Then he says this, where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering of sin. First Corinthians says this, love keeps no record of wrongdoing. God is the only one who lives that command out perfectly. It says here, what God will do is he'll remember our sins no more. We remember what we did five minutes ago. We remember what we did last night. We remember what we did last week. What does God choose to remember? God chooses to remember the once and for all time, perfect life offering and sacrifice of his son on our behalf. I think if the holy God of the universe can remember that, then we can stop wallowing in our sin and start praising God for what he's done and what he's provided and given. Listen, I'll ask this. What offering could you possibly give? As it says here, there's no longer any offering for sin. What offering could you possibly give that's better than the offering that Christ laid down on the cross? What, what offering could you possibly give with your hands that's better than what he did with his nailed, scarred hands? We would have to answer that honestly and say nothing. And so what we can do is walk in repentance when there's imperfection in our lives, and we can start praising. We can spend more time praising God for the once and for all time sacrifice that he chooses to remember. He doesn't remember our sins. This is, this is what he chooses to do. It's not like God can't remember or forget. He chooses not to remember them. He chooses to, to operate in, in his relationship with us based upon the offering once and for all time of Christ. There's no longer any offering. That's what he says. So here's some questions as I start to wrap up here. How will this impact your life? Let me state this. Christ was perfect with all of his time management. His eyes always had perfect self-control in what he looked at. He lived a life of perfect self-control. He ate perfectly. He worked perfectly. He was perfect in his speech and in his words and his love and his desires and his respect for people. And in every way, he made that once and for all time perfect life he lived out belong to those who trust in him. So that when God looks at us, he sees though every area of our life has been made perfect. When you understand that to the core, it produces joy, freedom, and rest in your life. It doesn't produce this relentless pursuit of, of, of restlessness. It produces rest. What this also means is that sometimes God will bring us to a spot of rest and we can accept the rest that he's given us. Think about this way too. Jesus didn't heal every person in his life, but was his ministry perfect? Yes. He did not feed every person, but what is his ministry perfect? Yes. What is going on there? Jesus lived within human limitations, and we have to do the same thing as well. When, when, when I go to school, <clears throat> I submit oftentimes B papers, papers that I know are probably going to be a B. And you guys might think, well, that's not a good thing to do. Text says, all you do, do the glory of God. I, I have to understand this, that I want to give my family and my church family my A's, which means that something's going to have to give with me living inside of my limitations. Jesus' ministry was perfect, but he took naps. We can rest, people, because he's given us his perfection. He came at a time, this blows my mind. If I was God, I would have thought productivity, and I would have come now where there's cars and you can go fast. He walked. He walked everywhere. And his ministry was perfect. He lived within his limitations, and so can we. If we know that the perfection we need is to be made right with the perfect and holy God, for him to look at us and see perfection, this is also how it impacts us impacts us. I had a rough morning. Wife's been out of town since Thursday, and I was at my wit's end. 
And I was having to preach this to myself. I don't have to be a perfect parent. <laughs> I need to rest in Christ's perfection for me. It allows us to own our imperfections. When someone comes to me, my wife comes to me, anyone comes to me and says, Rick, I've noticed this. I can own that. I can say, yeah, to my kids, I can say, dad, sorry. And what, I, what I'm doing is saying, I need the perfection of Jesus Christ, which he's made mine. I am not perfect in and of myself. I can receive what you're telling me because it only shows how much I need Jesus. When my kids come to me, I'm like, my, my job is to point you always to a perfect savior because he's the one you need. It allows us to not be so defensive because when we see our imperfections, we get to go, oh yeah, I am. But Jesus made me perfect. And he's working out this process inside of me. Finally, here's what we need to do in our response to this as Christians. I said, live in the word, live in community. But here's what we need to. Christians need to adopt missional living. There is a world that is pursuing this relentless pursuit of perfection and they're tired and their souls are burnt out and they're exhausted. And Christians have the answer of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, where he makes us perfect once and for all time. The very thing that we need, the very thing that our neighbors need is the gospel. Christians can't afford and we can't afford to just be sitting in our living rooms and reading magazines. There's people in the world that are without hope. God has placed you where you live, in your workplace, in all these places, because there's non-Christians there that need to hear the gospel. That's what it looks like to live on mission, live missionally, is to take that. Ask your gospel communities or make some challenges. Who can you invite into your home? Who can you invite into a meal? Who can you invite into your life? Because Christians need to live an outward life, getting outside of our bubbles and sharing this good news of Christ in once and for all time perfection. Let's pray. Father, I praise you so much that for once, that once and for all time, we have been made perfect. Let this bring our souls rest this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.